Welcome to the Planet Beyond podcast, brought to you by Fugro, the leading partner in delivering geodata from the greatest subsea depths right to outer space, and hosted by me, John Baston Pitt. If we're to avoid the worst impacts of climate change, we must reach net zero by 2050 and limit temperature rises to less than 1.5 degrees. The most important step on this journey will be the urgent transition from fossil fuels to low carbon alternatives such as wind, solar and hydro. But even this will not on its own be enough to prevent significant harm from climate change. At the United Nations Climate Change Conference of Parties, or COP28, in the UAE last November, we saw a new focus on adaption and resilience. Global negotiators representing nearly 200 parties agreed targets for the global goal of adaption. Six new countries made commitments to the Green Climate Fund, which supports climate action in developing countries. This was paralleled by new commitments to the Adaption Fund. The conference emphasised the link between climate change, pollution and biodiversity. In response to this triple planetary crisis, governments need to consider ecosystems, biodiversity and carbon stores such as forests when developing their national climate action plans. These efforts align with the 3030 goals of the Convention on Biological Diversity, which seeks to protect 30% of the planet's land and oceans by 2030. Today, I'm joined by two attendees at COP28, Jane Glavin and David Miller. Jane is co-founder of Distant Imagery. The Abu Dhabi-based company develops and deploys drones, kites and balloons using local materials. Recently, they've developed drones to plant mangrove seedlings as part of the Abu Dhabi Mangrove Initiative. Jane joined us in the conversation on a Friday afternoon. Later in the recording, you might hear the call to prayer in the background. David is the Government Accounts Director for the Americas at Fugro. He has taken a lead on Fugro's engagement with UNESCO's Ocean Decade Initiative. Jane, David, welcome to Planet Beyond. Thank you, John. It's a great pleasure to be here with, uh, with you and Jane today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. You're very, very welcome. Now, COP28 saw a new focus on the oceans. David, why are oceans so important to climate change and, and what was decided at COP28? The oceans are truly the lifeblood of our planet and they play a critical role in regulating Earth's climate. 
Many have heard that the oceans are responsible for 50% of the oxygen produced on the planet, but may not be aware that they have also absorbed more than 90% of the excess heat and almost 30% of the excess carbon dioxide caused by human activity. The consequences of this include extreme weather events, rising sea levels, increased ocean temperatures, ocean acidification and biodiversity loss. The impacts of climate change would be far worse if it weren't for the ocean and their mitigation actions. But the oceans are under tremendous stress and we must reverse the cycle of decline in their health. At the same time, they represent the largest and the most dynamic reservoir of carbon in our climate system. The ocean can and must play a central role in efforts to achieve net negative emissions. Clearly, society must reduce carbon emissions, but the ocean could also play a role in removing existing emissions from the atmosphere. And blue carbon, such as mangrove restoration, represents one way of doing this. How did COP28 consider the contribution of the oceans? The oceans were featured in the thematic agenda. There was an ocean pavilion again for the second year in a row. Uh, and the agreed text invited parties to preserve and restore oceans and coastal ecosystems and scale up as appropriate ocean-based mitigation actions. So it's really, I think, quite, quite remarkable that we're at this stage when we think that even two years ago at COP26, uh, that was the first time that the ocean was even on the agenda at COP, 25 consecutive COPs without recognizing the importance of, of ocean. Uh, and now for us to be at this place, uh, two years uh, later, I think is, is very transformational and important. That's a lot of progress in two years. Are we moving fast enough though? Yes, I think it's a, it's a process, right? Events like COP that are raising the profile and visibility of this issue and the fact that there is uh, an ocean pavilion and, and promotion around the relevance and importance of the ocean and uh, the fact that, um, you know, we have, there was an ocean declaration, a Dubai ocean declaration this year at COP that was really meant to highlight the importance of the ocean to tackling the climate crisis. All of those will significantly improve the, the visibility and, uh, and help society more broadly, I think, appreciate uh, just the importance of the ocean to, uh, to climate. When we think about the role of oceans, we're thinking about natural systems. Nature-based solutions were another key theme of COP28. What are nature-based solutions and why are they so important? Jane? Nature-based solutions are, are relatively a new term that's come come alight and, and has gained a lot of traction. But really the reality of what nature-based solutions is and how it's practiced has been taking place for, for such a long time, for decades. It's really how we use nature to help protect us from different elements. How do we use nature to help support us 
in in our economies, in our coastal areas, in our really across both coast and terrestrial. It's how do we utilize nature to help support us really as humans. And so nature-based solutions can be uh, a really interesting and more holistic response than sometimes very architected, engineered uh, solutions such as breakwater, hard, hard edge breakwaters or damming or different things that are engineered solutions. Nature-based solutions is around utilizing nature for the protection. So it can consist of having restor restoration areas, soft edges towards uh, coastal areas. It can be um, multi-use of, uh, of a forestry area that has bees and, and people interacting in different ways to help uh, support the communities that are living within it. Within the UAE, it's it's been really interesting times with nature-based solutions. It was brought up during COP. There was a real focus on nature-based solutions and how uh, nature really is front and foremost as part of the solutions towards adaptation and as well as parts of mitigation solutions as well. For instance, uh, reforesting a mangrove area. So you might have storms protection, but at the same time, you're having multiple, they call them co-benefits, but they're just additional benefits to that space. So they also provide nurseries for fisheries. They provide uh, water quality. They, they clean the waterways. They stabilize channels. There's so many different things that are all part and par parcel of doing one thing, you get multiple other benefits. And carbon offsetting is, is one of the, that absorption of carbon into these uh, marine systems, these blue carbon systems uh, is not capped. So it can be stored for thousands of years, which makes it different than terrestrial carbon storage. And so that's why also you'll be, you would have heard during COP28, uh, nature-based solutions, but also blue carbon ecosystems. And that's because of the ability for them to store in their canopy, in their so their biomass, their trunks, their trees, deadwood, as well as underneath the surface for thousands and thousands of years. And that's what makes blue carbon ecosystems really special, but also why they have been a bit of a focus towards them as well. Nature-based solutions provide a cost-effective approach as well as this holistic additional benefits. So in some areas, the reality is you do need some engineered solutions, but at the same time, if they're working in combination with nature-based solutions, then you can increase that impact while still having the protection of your coastal communities or your inland communities. David, mangroves have been an important example of nature-based solutions. Two initiatives at recent COPs, the Mangrove Breakthrough and the Mangrove Alliance, focused on them. Can you tell us a bit about these initiatives? The Mangrove Breakthrough is, uh, is a call for accelerated action and investment from governments, private sector and NGOs to help protect and restore uh, mangrove uh, ecosystems around around the world. 
And it, it's meant to provide a framework uh, to work together towards a global science-based target of securing uh, the future of over 15 million hectares of, of mangroves globally by 2030. And it's underpinned uh, by $4 billion of sustainable finance. The breakthrough was actually launched um, at COP27 in, in Egypt, but 21 countries have now formally endorsed the breakthrough uh, as of COP28. So significant increase in interest uh, and uh, participation there. And their work uh, has includes collective act in, actions that focus on uh, halting uh, mangrove loss, uh, restoring recent losses, doubling the protection of mangroves, uh, and ensuring the sustainable long-term finance for all uh, existing mangroves. The Mangrove Alliance um, for Climate is, is an organization that promotes the protection and, and restoration of mangroves uh, as a nature-based solution to climate change. And it's spearheaded by the United, United Arab Emirates uh, in partnership with Indonesia. Uh, it also was launched at COP27 uh, in Egypt and then further amplified at uh, the G20 summit hosted by Indonesia. And now there are 30 countries that have joined the Mangrove Alliance uh, for Climate. Um, that's up from seven a year ago. And uh, the, the collective now of 30 countries represent over 60% of the world's mangrove coverage. So you can sense that there's you know, a lot of momentum and, and a lot of traction gain, being gained here uh, in, in appreciating the value of mangrove ecosystems to, uh, as a nature-based solution for, for climate change. There's a lot of work being done then at a government level and by large organizations. But Jane, you're there on the ground with your Wellington boots on, making a difference. What's your perspective? Yeah, I think the Mangrove Alliance and the Breakthrough people are so incredibly passionate and they bring with them such a wealth of knowledge behind them and the intention is incredible. Where I think could benefit uh, the Mangrove Alliance, because they're doing such incredible work, really, with national chapters and national chapters being able to communicate with each other and all this um, focus on working groups and collaborative science. It's really, it's a beautiful thing. Where I think we could add value is also adding in the business sector, because with the business sector comes quite a bit of technological advancements. We're in the field, we're working with communities, we are um, really bringing out new technologies. Sometimes private sectors really has this um, push on for them also to really deliver around uh, financing as well. So there's this untapped potential really of bringing that conversation, those private sectors to the table as well. So it becomes more of a rounded discussion. It becomes a more holistic opportunity for the advancements of real change on the ground. There's a well-known saying about analyzing complex challenges. When you're up to your neck in alligators, first drain the swamp. Jane, you're, you're out there in the mangroves and you definitely don't want to drain them. How are you identifying those challenges, those alligators, 
in coming up with ways to maintain that complex natural environment. We've been working with really wonderful partners. We started our engagement with Engie, it's a French uh, energy company, and the Environment Agency Abu Dhabi. Again, this is a, a showcase of how in the United Arab Emirates, business and, and government work closely together uh, to accomplish goals. And so we in Distant Imagery, what we do is we self-engineer and build all our own aerial and underwater solutions. Uh, so that's drones, kites, balloons, so that we can do environmental analysis, monitoring, as well as restoration. And so we build all these different tools and solutions. Uh, sometimes we'll go very high tech and do hydrogen fuel cell drones or hybrid electric drones. Other times, what's most close to our heart is really building solutions that are also applicable to the communities in developing countries. And so what we do is we test our solutions here at scale within the Middle East and in our region to make sure what we're, what we're working on is, is valuable and sound, there's data behind it, and then we bring those lessons learned and we go with communities, developing country communities, directly within the community itself and train them how to build their own solutions. So out of plywood, out of hand-sawn wood, out of plastic bottles that they, they convert into 3D filament to create the rigging. Uh, we provide our planting rigging that we've engineered ourselves. It's a mechanical push drive. And so we provide this rigging and the training so they become self-sufficient with the aim that if you can build something yourself out of things that are available to you, you can maintain and operate it long-term. Then, because we've been working in one of the harshest conditions in the world around mangrove restoration and other restoration, we work with the communities, we share what we've learned around our methodology, uh, which is a nature first principle. So we let nature dictate our, our planting patterns. But obviously every region, every condition is different around the world. So we work with the communities to adapt that methodology. And so we do training with them and, and learn and adapt and modify the, the, the planting routes. And we help support monitor them. And then at the end of the day, they really are self-sufficient. Getting that community buy-in must really help the longevity of these projects. But I'm rather blown away by your approach. A normal business model is, well, something like this. We innovate, we protect that innovation, we keep it to ourselves, and we go out and we make lots of money. Distant Imagery is a private company. It needs to make a profit, cover its costs, and pay its salaries. But you're not following that traditional model. How do you keep the business running while fulfilling your, your goals? Sometimes we see people run away very quickly when they... <laughs> for financers when, they talk, when we talk about this language of, of what we're doing. But really, at the scale... There are so many developing countries in this world and there's, uh, so, and there's so many communities because we're talking at the community level and when they create co-ops and they expand and upscale, but really there is a, there are enough potential projects around the world. Mangroves take place across the equator. There's, 
you know, millions of hectares of mangroves out there that need to be restored to reach national commitments, that it, it just makes sense to do good. The people that we work on projects with really enable us to, to really love also what we do. We work in the region with ADNOC, with Mabadla Energy, with NG, with Environment Agency, all these incredible partners. That uh, project funding helps support our business and that's when we go into developing communities and use some of that, uh, that financing back into the works. You talked about the thousands of communities that could be reforesting mangroves. It's astonishing how big this is. And you're, and you're planting millions of mangroves. Can you go into those numbers a bit more? Just how many mangroves do we need to be planting? It's, to be very frank, not really about the, a number plays a part of it, but it's really about the impact. So it's about the final forest at the end of the day. So what is the scale of that forest um, that has been added to the system? So, but from a numbers perspective, we planted 3.5 million mangroves last year. We're about to plant 4.5 million. Uh, we just planted 3.5 million. And so what we do is we take a nature-based approach, an ecologically-based approach, where uh, we do not plant in lines because nature doesn't plant in lines, does it? So really to increase the amount of ecosystem services, those nature-based uh, impact that we talked about earlier, we let nature dictate to us, tell her story to us about what those planting patterns should be. So we collect a lot of data, we did a lot of field surveys, we work with people that know these areas best, so fishermen, dive groups, uh, local community members in other countries, and so that we understand what natural regeneration would look like, what those patterns, those natural sways based on elevation and tides. And it's usually about 60, 70% of the work really is just figuring out the site selection and figuring out what those patterns should be. And then we used our engineered drones, the ones that we've tested, we have six ladies, they're all engineered and built by ourselves here in the UAE, and they're based a, a bit on uh, recycled wood. This year we're changing it to uh, bamboo that's being sourced here locally. And so what happens is that you collect all the seeds, you germinate those seeds, we take a natural process to germination, again, letting nature dictate back to us um, what it should look like. We load the seeds into the drones, into these large drone hoppers, which uh, then we have a mechanical drive that we've engineered ourselves that pushes the seed out, well, drives the seed out at about 80 kilometers an hour. And so, and then we also modulate it by height and speed of flying. So those three factors together will run autonomously two to three drones at a time along these flight patterns and the soil conditions will tell us how fast it needs to drop out. 
And that's the key, is really getting the seeds stuck into the ground in the right place at the low tide. And once they get stuck in, because they're in stuck in the right place, right? And nature then takes over. And that's why we also say it's a nature's first principle. Really, what we're doing is just enabling the drones are secondary. They allow us to plant, you know, 2,000 seeds in eight minutes with one drone. So it's about 6,000 seeds that we're running each eight minutes. But really, again, at the end of the day, it's not about that number, it's about 8,000 in, in, you know, eight minutes. It's really about the impact of that growth. So those little seedlings are going to grow. They protect each other because they're a bit closer to each other. They accumulate more soil. They um, shade each other. They, they protect from predation. Wonderful. Let's just talk about that impact for a second. Are we at a point where we can look at certain areas and say, look how established this is. Look at what we've achieved at this new ecosystem we've created. Are we at that point yet? The Arabian Gulf is a fascinating place. It really is incredible that these systems thrive here at the height of salinity, temperature, uh, everything you can think that could go wrong for the seedlings to grow but they do thrive, but ours grow very slow. So within the Arabian Gulf, when we plant seeds, it's about, uh, and with, with uh, traditional nursery seedlings, it's about 40 years for um, planted mangrove to be able to sequester similar amounts, to absorb that carbon at similar amounts as an old growth mangrove. It takes about 10 years for it to start producing seeds. So we're about five years in. <laughs> we are collecting data each year on the change of what we're seeing going on in the ecosystem. Um, and that's something that we're really excited about also uh, releasing and talking about those findings as well. But we're, you're start, we're starting to see a difference, but I think it will honestly take that the 10 years to show real, real impact to the actual system itself really access to information, exchange of information, working within, with data that is interoperable as well um, so that we can exchange and really enhance. And really working, we've you know really looked, we've searched for other drone operators that are out there in other parts of the world to, to share success rates and stories and lessons learned. And that's just beginning now. It's a long-term project then, and it's going to develop as you get more data on the project and the ecosystem. But I know that data can be hard to get hold of. David, that's been something you've been working on as part of the Ocean Decade. One aspect of that is the Ocean Decade Corporate Data Group. We, we talked to Louis Demar about the group back in February last year. Can you remind us what it is doing? Work of the Ocean Decade is extremely important and it, it really fundamentally depends on access <laughs> to, to data, right? I think uh, that's really at the heart of, of the decade. And uh, in recognition of that, the, uh, the corporate data group uh, was established. It's, it's an informal working group um, that provides subject matter expertise and connections related to corporate data 
uh, within the implementation of the United Nations Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development. And the mandate and, and goal of the group is really to establish strategies, um, best practices, frameworks and mechanisms that would allow private sector organizations uh, to provide public access to their privately owned data. And this will help uh, establish, fill, fill gaps and uh, address the data needs uh, of the community overall and, and support uh, ocean uh, management decisions and policy uh, development requirements. The, uh, the working group was uh, established jointly by uh, FUGRO and the Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission of UNESCO, which is the UN agency responsible for implementing the ocean decade. Um, and, and we've been up and running now for roughly a year, so established in January 2023. And at the moment, we have 10 members. Uh, these members are kind of very forward-leaning global organizations, forward-leaning on ocean stewardship, um, and uh, recognize the value and, and benefit of uh, providing public access to their privately held, held data. Um, and they come from various industries. Um, so there's telecommunications represented, there's energy, both traditional as well as uh, renewable. There's also fisheries uh, and also marine contracting representation on the group. And uh, again, rather than kind of acting bilaterally or unilaterally, this is a collective that are looking at the challenges, identifying the barriers um, that have historically prevented this from happening and kind of systematically breaking down those barriers to be able to create this new ecosystem and, and framework that will hopefully not just facilitate, but also incentivize and motivate this behavior within the private sector. The group is made up of some of the biggest data collectors working in the oceans. The 80-20 rule comes into play here, doesn't it? By focusing on a few big players, you're hoping to unlock the vast majority of the data that can be shared. But data customers aren't all on this scale. A lot of them are, well, like distant imagery, much smaller organisations with very specific needs. Jane, if you could have any data you wanted, what would it, what would it be and how could you use it? Oh, that'd be incredible. <laughs> the list would be very long. But it's really around because when you're working with any kind of coastal restoration, uh, salt marsh or mangroves or seagrass, um, really it's around understanding tides and currents and being able to, but very precise data. And that data can be very expensive, understanding the, so drones can take a, a the smaller picture, a very high resolution, uh, 2.5 centimeter, 1.5 centimeter per pixel or ground sampling distance, GSD. But it's, it's on a small area. What's sometimes needed and often needed is really this large scale, what's happening in the surrounding areas of that. And that data can be extremely expensive to access and be able to operate as well, operate with uh, the software to do that analysis as well. And so having 
access this micro nuance of, of access to, to very specific data where in, in our region it's 10 centimeters when I'm speaking a very shallow environment it's 10 centimeters between what makes uh, salt marshes sorry seagrass to a salt marsh to a mangrove it's these micro elevations so understanding tides uh, at uh, a larger level as well, so that we can downscale it to the to the area that we need precisely. Uh, access to um, different uh, just characteristics of the ocean sphere, understanding how that change is going to move as well from climate change aspect as well, understanding the uh, the potential risk to the area, the what's happening in the future. All this data is, would be incredible. Nature is just astonishingly complex. And you really need these different data sources to understand and work with it. But let's zoom out even further. We've talked about one nature-based solution so far. How should we be thinking about nature-based solutions overall? Certainly, yeah, we've, we've touched on it here, and, and I think we, we have to recognize that nature-based solutions offer integrative approaches uh, that have multiple benefits, right? So kind of historically, there have been engineered and architected approaches that have been maybe effective in some respects, but at the expense of, of, other, uh, of other aspects. And, uh, um, you know, sometimes those, those approaches also May, have, may contribute to biodiversity loss, they may increase carbon emissions, whereas kind of, again, to the, the holistic approach of, of nature-based solutions uh, is the benefits that they can bring in, in many regards, right? So they can reduce climate risk, but also uh, produce other benefits such as climate regulation, uh, coastal protection, biodiversity enhancement even, right here, as in this example, and, and recreation and even health, right? So. A, a very impactful solution with many, many, and in some cases, many, many benefits. I hear a lot there about the engineering challenges of this and the environmental benefits. But you're also talking about more intangible community benefits. Jane, so much of your work is about the link between nature and the community. How has that played out in, in the UAE? Absolutely. I've really seen, even because part of our programs, the projects we run here in the UAE and within our region, a large part of it is around volunteerism. So they, we have, for instance, a thousand volunteers coming out for one project with ADNOC at each phase of the project. So they see, they go do the site selection, they go collect their seeds, and we ask them at each phase to say thank you to the founder of the country, Sheikh Zayed, because it's of him, his, our long history of mangrove restoration. So tying back to culture, tying back to why these mangroves are really important to us. And then we always get them to name their seeds, to say thank you to their seeds, to really em emphasize that touch, that like what we're doing is not about planting a tree for a tree. We're, we're, we're building that connection. We're, we're supporting ourselves and our own health as humans, as well as, as the nature 
itself as well. So at combined effect. And so, and then they go out and monitor as well. And I've seen very serious people who are a bit timid, you know, they don't know what to expect. They get their booties on, they, you know, still very serious and they get a little mud and then they giggle and then they get more mud on them and they start smelling and touching and feeling. And it's such a different, you know, the laughter, the connection, they come out, when can we do this again? So really that, that real connection, we can't say enough. It really ties us to why we're, we're doing what we're doing and why we're all fighting this fight for the greater good uh, of protecting the earth for, from climate change as well. And so, yeah, it's incredible. You've been to quite a few cops, Jane. What made this one special? There was a difference. It was an intangible difference, but an absolute critical difference, I think. Really around Her Excellency Razan al-Mubarak, really bringing back and really focusing, I guess. There is a real focus on the integration of Indigenous knowledge as part of the discussion and the dialogue. And that it's critical towards the success of what we're doing as well, and is of equal or more so of value to the whole dialogue as a whole. And so really this, there was a shift towards in this incorporation, like a real focus, like it was a tangible focus on bringing in all voices across multiple sectors, including the people on the ground, the, the communities themselves, the indigenous knowledge itself, as well as pr- the role of private sector, the role of government, all working together in NGOs and academia, obviously. But this And that is the spirit of the UAE as well. It's this idea of we're all in it together and each each is a valuable um, part of that dialogue and that discussion. It does seem like with each COP, there's a wider and wider engagement. But even with more smaller organizations and community groups playing a role, these can be seen as quite well specialised and exclusive events. Are wider messages getting out, David? Are we, are we seeing that whole of society engagement that the climate crisis requires? I think the COP provides a, a rallying point and, and to, uh, to Jane's earlier comment that kind of it's, it's motivational and inspirational for those that are there for sure, but I think the press and coverage around COP is increasing too, right? So the media presence was very strong. The information that was pushed out on a daily basis was was very significant. Um, so in in general, you know, I think there is there is greater awareness that's going to only improve, and society is is starting to uh, uh, to, to to appreciate and recognize. I think this connection between ocean and climate, and it's through events like this, it's through outreach, uh, as well as communications and and, uh, information that is generated by it. But it it really does, I mean, present a clear and present danger, right? Climate change uh, and climate crisis uh, is a clear and present danger. And uh, data sharing, information sharing, um, experience sharing, 
it's all sharing of resources is it's all critically important um, we we don't have time to duplicate effort and we don't have time to repeat mistakes right i think it's all hands on deck no one sector is going to address this on its own it, it truly requires a holistic effort from all from all actors and uh, and and i think this this cop uh, and the good efforts that come from it and the commitments uh, and relationships and dialogue that come from it will only accelerate solutions and impact Thank you, David, and thank you, Jay. The climate crisis is a global challenge. It impacts global systems like our oceans. But often, the most effective solutions are local. Small organisations like Distant Imagery can build links with local communities and contribute cutting-edge technologies. But these smaller organisations sometimes can't see the bigger picture. That's not because they don't try to, but because the data they need to form that view is siloed away by large data collectors. So it's really important these larger organisations, mainly in the private sector, do come together and start working out how they can contribute to building a shared and open understanding of our oceans and of our world. David, Jane, thank you again. It's been an inspiring conversation. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, leave a like in the podcast app you're listening on and help us reach a wider audience by sharing this episode with your network your family, and your friends. As I always say, until next time, be safe, be remarkable, be the difference. <laughs> <laughs>